Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a spin-off that we do each month from Adventure Rider Radio. Both Adventure Rider Radio and Raw are produced by Elizabeth Martin and myself, Jim Martin. We also produce another podcast called Beyond a Shadow, and links to all of these are available at our website, adventureriderradio.com. On this episode of Raw, it's just the four of us because the Rickses are returning from their most recent motorcycle trip. I think it was to Europe. And we're talking today about Motorcycle Chronicles as well as answering some listener questions. This and more coming up on today's episode. Now, Adventure Rider Radio is powered by some ads and very important your support and it's adventure rider radio that keeps raw going so we have a support page set up at adventureriderradio.com anything ten dollars or more will get you an arr sticker sent back at you for your motorcycle your pannier or your toolbox whatever anything fifty dollars or more gets you a mention on this show right now that's if you want it you can opt out for that as well so for this month those that have donated fifty dollars or more i want to give a shout out for them right now and we have two people one is brian conley the other howard benz thank you both very much means a great deal for us if you are a supporter of adventure rider radio no matter what you support with no matter how much we really appreciate it of course so thank you to all that support the show in any way that you do through single amounts or through our patron support crew Uh, a little from each of you makes a huge difference for us in what we can do here at adventure rider radio if you're interested in supporting Adventure Rider Radio and Raw, just drop by the website adventureriderradio.com forward slash support. Or if you just go to the website, you'll see the link there as well. And um, we would love it if you consider our patron support, which is a, a monthly support amount. Anyway, drop by the website. Now, here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for September 2018. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yep, ready, steady. From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, it is September 2018, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our minds, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined with, well, some of our regular Overland co-hosts. The Rickses, Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, are just returning from a recent motorcycle adventure to Europe, I believe, so they're not going to make this this month, but they're going to be back next month and they can give us a full rundown on what happened. But meanwhile, we do have Sam Manicom. Sam? Well, hi, everybody. Um, you're catching up with me in um, northern Spain in a region called Cantabria, and I'm in a town called um, Santia del Mar. Now, this place is absolutely brilliant. I've got to tell you about it. It's beautiful sunshine day, and this town is all cobblestone streets and um, ancient buildings that overhang the walkways and so on. The hospitality that we're staying in, because um, Birgit and I are on a three-and-a-half-week ride at the moment, um, on one side, we've got horses. On another side, we've got cows. And on the other side, we've got the cobblestone village. And I tell you what, today has been a day of complete unexpected fun. Um, we thought we'd just go into the town for a potter before moving on. And um, oh, to anybody who's not English, a potter, a bit of a meander. Um, and we found that there was a full bore cycle racing um, going on time trials. 
and um, the the colours and the buzz and the noise and the hype and everything's fantastic. There are people racing from USA, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, the UK, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, yeah, I'm running out of fingers now, but it's been full-on international affair. I've never seen anything like it. So we've had a spectacular day today, not doing anything to do with motorcycling, although we were totally impressed with the Spanish motorcycle police. Each cyclist that was heading off had his own motorcycle police um, escort rider. There were 70 motorcycle cops in um, the village today. And I, I don't think the UK even has that many. But just for this race, there were 70 of them. Fantastic to see. That's been a buzz. Are you on a motorcycle trip? Yeah, absolutely. Two rides. Yes. Where, where are you going? Northern Spain, and then we're heading down into Portugal. And this literally is um, a trip with no plan other than that and getting back in time to um, catch the ferry when we return. So the idea of this is that we're going to just wake up in the morning and think, let's go in that direction and see what we find. Hmm. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really loving already not being on a schedule. It's excellent. You're just staying wherever you, you're not booking hotels in advance and things like that? Well, I mean, tonight um, we did do because, of course, well, sure. um, recording yeah. Raw. And I wanted to make sure that we were somewhere that was nice and quiet. So pardon the hounds of the Baskerville in the background, if anybody can hear yeah, those. Yeah, what is the deal with that? So um, why, are we, why are we hearing dogs in the background? But, do you know, th there's a guy who lives in a house t um, 200 or so yards away, and he must have 10 dogs or something like that. And I, I, I don't think you can let them out. And these things are just frustrated and bored and barking. And, well, I, I just feel really sorry for them. Um, I'm thinking about going and buying some steak and giving them a surprise tonight just to, to stop the boredom. Um, but I haven't told Birgit that yet because she's got the wallet. Hey, since they're going to be on the show, can you get their names? <laughs> I can. <laughs> they're probably called, uh, one's inevitably called Pedro. Um, I'll work on the others. <laughs> we also have Graham Field. Graham, I don't even know where you are right now. Are you at home? Yeah, just got back home about three days ago after my uh, trip back from the UK. You may, may have mentioned on the last show that I bought a new bike, a Triumph Thruxton, and I just rode it 4,000 miles from the UK and got back home three days ago, four days ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I saw some posts on Facebook. It looks like you went all over the place. 4,000 miles. Was that just to get, in, you'd get some time on the bike? Yeah, I did, I did put it on a Triumph Thruxton, our owner's Facebook page, and someone said, it's not 4,000 miles from England to to, uh, to uh, Bulgaria. I said, who the hell goes, if I wanted to go in a straight line, I'd buy a Harley. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, no, I went around, uh, so went through Switzerland, Italy, Slovenia, Croatia. And actually, there's a bit of a story, as soon as the Rixes aren't here, maybe I'll tell it. Um people who read um, Eureka may remember that when I got to the Turkish border, I realised that I'd left my vehicle documents in the UK and I had to wait for DHL to send my vehicle documents to me. And I'd ridden all through Holland and Germany and I'd gone down into Switzerland and, I'd, and, and uh, Italy and Slovenia and Croatia, the Adriatic Highway, which is one of my favourite roads on the planet, riding along there. And I suddenly thought, where's my vehicle documents? I've got these tiny little soft panniers on the back of the bike. I thought, I can see them in my head as I'm riding. It's not in there. It's not in either one of those. No, no, it's not in my tank bag. 
I haven't bought it. It's at my mum's house. <laughs> so I had to spend a week in Croatia, which is a really expensive country, waiting once again for my mother to send out my vehicle documents to me again. <laughs> I haven't learned. It'd be nice if there was like this, like a radio podcast where people of experienced travelers spoke about hints and tips for when you go on long trips. That'd be really useful to me. I'll give you the link at the end of the show. I just, I think it's great though. That what this story tells me is just how fantastic your mother still is taking care of you. She is. Yeah. She had to go to DHL in, in Culture High Street and send it off. Of course, there was a weekend in between. So I was an extra six days in the worst places to be stuck other than it's expensive. And, uh, and once again, send out my vehicle um, documents to me, because once again, I left without them. <laughs> so, Graham, uh, are you going to do that again? Probably. I, you know, Honestly. Once, once upon a time, a long time ago, I was in a restaurant in Colorado, and the sugar sachets had all these philosophical little messages on them, and they were all brilliant. I wish I'd written them all down. But one of them, one of them said experience is a wonderful thing it lets you recognize a mistake when you make it a second time yeah too right (laughs) i mean it was so it's embarrassing humiliating but what's the point in hiding it i did it again i left with only one of two vital documents that you need when you travel your motorcycle documents and your passport and then get this so having waited six days for it to arrive um, I then cross into from Croatia into Montenegro, and it, it wasn't as it was a relatively straightforward crossing. But the guy's holding up this bit of paper. He's going green card, green card. Now in England, the insurance will cover you. European insurance will cover you for most European and some non-European countries like Serbia and Iceland. But it's not green. They are not green, and this causes a great deal of confusion across the rest of Europe because a British. European insurance is not a green card. It's not physically green. So I was like, no, I've got it. It's I've got insurance. It's just not green. So I'm trying to show it to him. He's not interested. And so he wants me to go to this booth and buy insurance. So I pull over once I've gone through the, the, the customs thing, pull over and I check, recheck my insurance, read on the back. Yes, I'm covered for all European countries. Montenegro is one of them. It's not a problem. I don't need this. It's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm going to disobey this guy. I'm not going to go and buy this extra insurance. So off I go, and I'm riding into Montenegro. And after about, I'd been riding for about 15 minutes, I thought, did he give me my passport back? And I stopped. <laughs> and I looked in my tank bag, and he hadn't. For half an hour, I'd had both my documents. And now I've left my bloody passport behind. <laughs> So I turn around and go to the booth, contemplating this fight in my head about showing him in like several different languages on my shorts. Look, I'm insured. I don't need to show you that I bought a green card, assuming that he's holding my passport as collateral. But that clearly wasn't what it was. He just forgot to give it back to me. So he's all humble. Sorry, sir. Sorry, here's your passport. And I'm just relieved. Thinking, Jesus Christ, Graham, you do a show giving advice? You can't even ride through Europe without screwing it up. <laughs> well, well, listen, uh, stay with us, folks, because coming up, Graham has a lot more advice <laughs> on, on travel-related things. We're going to get to that. But at first, I want to bring in Grant Johnson. Grant, you are in British Columbia, I assume, at home. 
I'm still at home, yes, but not for very long. Tomorrow morning at some stupid o'clock hour, I think I have to leave the house at 2.30 in order to get to the airport. Uh, and I'm flying into the eye of the hurricane. You've probably all heard about Florence, and it's finished for everybody that's uh, listening to this, because by that time it'll be all done. But uh, I have no idea what the situation is going to be. I'm flying to Washington Dulles Airport, and we've got a hum event in West Virginia, which is just out of the hurricane area. But where I'm flying and where I got to drive to get there is in it. So we shall see. It's going to be interesting. Why not ride to this one? <laughs> it's in West Virginia. I'm in British Columbia. Well, Much not, as I would it's like not that to. Far. I mean, there's, there's no ferries involved. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it would be a flat-out ride for a long time. But the worst of it is I then have to fly – for the next weekend, I have to fly to North Carolina where there are more storms coming into the area. And then i got to go from there to California where there is some forest fires still burning. So I'm going from one disaster to another to another in three weeks. So it's going to be busy and it's going to be interesting. Well, in the in the past uh, week or so, I guess almost two weeks, my son, my youngest son, Peter, got his motorcycle license. So what that. we did was, yeah, what we did was we went down to Vancouver. He lives in Vancouver, and went. I went riding with him because he the, in uh, the system now you get a learner's permit, which they put an L on the bike, and and then he has to ride around. But he needs a licensed rider with him. So it was my opportunity to ride around the city. Now, I'm not a city person, so I don't, I don't spend any time in a city. Um, but this is sort of in-depth, really immersed in the city of Vancouver, riding around just anywhere, just randomly. We had a lot of fun. And, and I didn't find it as difficult riding as what I thought. Because in Vancouver, I'm sure, Grant, you know, um, but it's um, obviously heavy traffic. But also the roads. You get a lot of roads that are very steep. So for a new rider, I've got to watch him on all of this. But it, it wasn't bad. And, and, of course, he's a young guy. I mean, he's... How old is Peter? He's 20... He's going to be 22. <laughs> I had to ask Elizabeth here. Um, and, um, yeah, he's, he picks it up like no problem at all. I mean, you know, he's, he's picking up the riding so quickly, and, he, and he's so confident and comfortable on the bike. Now, the one thing that's good about him is he's, very, um, he's a very realistic rider. He, he rides very carefully and safely, which I really appreciate. But I was really impressed with the city. You know, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and what my thought process was originally when he said he wanted to get a motorcycle, I'm thinking, wow, he's going to ride in the city. But I think it's easier to ride my bike in the city than it was to drive the vehicle in the city. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you've got a choice between a motorcycle and a, and a car in the city, are you crazy? It's definitely a motorcycle. It's way better. Yeah, but if you're not from the city, you just think though, that you've got to worry about the safety aspect of it. But um, it's not so much the case. I mean, you do have to watch that, of course. But of course. It, it, it's not the case. You've got so much more maneuverability. You can pull over anywhere. You can get off the road anytime you want. Um, it was really sort of an eye-opener for me in Vancouver. Yeah. In a car in Vancouver, you're just sitting, 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 sitting with the rest of them. And on a motorcycle, you do have that extra maneuverability. The catch in Vancouver, of course, is it's not like Europe where you can go up the side and you can filter and do all kinds of things to avoid the traffic. You're effectively a car, but that does give you a little more space. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's a little different. It, it, I keep, I, went, I was actually out driving with Susan the other day and got into a tight, tight situation. And I just kind of squeezed through because there was room and I could. And Susan was not happy with me doing that. And somebody honked at me. And I said, what's the problem? I got a foot on each side. What more can you ask for? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Wait a minute. You can't do that here. Yeah, I'm driving like I'm in Europe again. But in London, that would be nothing, would it, Sam? I've heard about the driving in, in London. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, London's a complete doddle. There's hardly any traffic there at all. You don't need to filter or split lanes, depending on your terminology. <laughs> and um, your bash bars never, ever collect anybody else's paint. Um, and, of course, pothole dodging is just not an issue. It's a doddle, isn't it, Graham? Yeah. <laughs> I quite enjoy driving. Yeah, like, no. It's <clears throat> not. It's like, like, a, like a ghost town these days. Oh, it, it really, got- really is. Just got to watch out for the tumbleweed blowing across. That's right. about the only, only real problem. Yeah, because that can actually rub quite a lot of paint off, can't it, tumbleweed? Yeah. <laughs> More good advice from the travellers. London is easy to ride in. <laughs> I just remember discovering something on cars these days. You can push a button and the, the wing mirrors fold in. I thought, that's perfect. That's what you need in London. You have to have a new car for that, though. Yeah, well, I was driving a car in... It wasn't in London. Where the heck was it? It was somewhere out in the country, some small town. Anyway, I came upon a, there was a road and it went through these two walls and realized I'm in a really small car and my mirrors are an inch away. And then said, oh yeah, I, I saw, I pushed the button and the wing mirrors folded in and I had all kinds of room. It was wonderful. Susan was freaking out as we were going through this. You're going to hit it. You're going to hit it. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I've got six inches. I'm fine. <laughs> I was going up a mountain pass last week and the car in front of me it was kind of narrow but it wasn't that bad had put his wing mirrors in going up the pass so it's like great so you've got no idea i'm behind you then yeah <laughs> it's not that narrow that he needs to do that right no he didn't really have very good space perception uh-huh yeah oh well so graham how was the bike i mean this, this is a, a 2016 thruxton from what i remember and you've ridden it to four thousand miles are you still in love with it Oh God, so much. It was spectacular. You know, I've been, I made a point and I've been quite lucky that I've done a lot of riding this year. It's autumn now in the, in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. And really since March, I've been, I've been, I've been doing a lot of riding on a lot of the bikes and I've had this little niggle in the back of my mind. I mean, the Triumph Tiger is great. It's a mileage muncher and I've put different tires on it and I've tried so many things to try and get a thrill out of it it's a very smooth triple cylinder engine and it did accelerates fine and it handles fine but it doesn't really thrill me and the klr i love but i would say the klr the excitement of it is more where it will take you than the actual riding of it it's fine it's good it handles well but it doesn't as a commuting bike it doesn't really do it for you and i haven't had that real thrill for a long, long time. And I got on the Thruxton, I've been on it for the last three weeks almost constantly, and I've got that thrill again, that wonderful adrenaline rush. And it's not just from the acceleration, but the power delivery, the handling, every aspect of it. It's such a beautiful bike, whether you're riding it, whether you're looking at it, whether you're talking about it, which is all I do at the moment, but there's that thrill is back. And, and it's not really what you call an adventure bike, yet it's been a, a, a wonderful experience. So, yeah, I'm very much in love with it. Yeah, maybe not classed as an adventure bike, but certainly you, know, you prove it right there with 4,000 miles. It's a travel bike. There's no yeah, there's only panniers on it and a tank bag, so it kind of counts. Did you put panniers <laughs> on it or did it come with them? No, I got some little ones. They're Triumph ones, and they're on this little sort of... Uh, these, this, these little chrome bits that stick out the side and these panniers just slip on or are held on by a couple of 
little little plastic clips and it says do not put more than three kilos or do more than 70 miles an hour and I've got like 10 kilos in and I'm doing 110 miles an hour and glancing in my mirrors and seeing if they're there but they actually they fed up they were great the unfortunate thing is it's a satin black paint job sort of matte satin black paint job and um and I had a magnetic tank bag and it scratched the hell out of the tank which is really annoying on such a new bike which is what i was saying before we went on air i've never had anything that new before and it's heartbreaking when you start getting the first scratches on it it really is mm, yeah you're almost better off just to drop it down on the pavement and then pick it up and ride it oh yeah i'll do that jim actually i'll do that when we have a break yeah <laughs> during the commercials i'll go outside kick it off the side stand there you knock go. off an indicator <laughs> i've seen people do that with the klr it's got to be the same thing so did you have any trouble with it i saw at one point you had a flat tire Oh, yeah. I was between, I was in that classic bit of no man's land. I just crossed out of Serbia, heading into Bulgaria, my last country. And um, and it felt funny. I'm pushing it rather than riding it because the engine's off because there's a bit of a line of traffic. And uh, my back tyre is flat, flat, flat. And uh, so then I push it through at the Bulgarian bit and the guys go, oh, nice bike, nice bike. And I speak a little bit of Bulgarian now and in Bulgaria and I explain, yes, but I've got a flat tyre. He said, no problem. There's a service station just up ahead. So with it in gear and push it uh, and with the engine running, but sort of pushing it because I don't want the tyre to come off the rim and scratch up my gorgeous aluminium rims. I get to the service station, put some air in the tyre, goes down instantly. And there is this fat bastard taxi driver who is there purely to prey on people who have problems at borders and he sort of takes control of the situation and i and i don't understand everything he's saying so i'm getting my girlfriend on the phone because now i've got free phone coverage uh, because i'm back in my own country and she's translating anyway long story short gets uh, a tire repair man who keeps stopping to i'm following him in the car he's got a big tank in his car so he keeps stopping pumping up the tire we get to his place he very expertly puts in a new tube we fix it and the bastard charged me 200 lever that's about 100 euros that is a week's wages Mm. to mend my bloody puncher i am so livid (laughs) (laughs) but you didn't ask ahead of time see how much it was going to cost well, we did, but it kept going up. It kept going up. And then, of course, you this is, you know, you're riding a nice bike. Clearly, you've got a lot of money. Well, I did have before I bought the nice bike. Yeah. So um, it's just, you know, my mate said you need to work it out per mile, you know. And, yeah, I've done 4,000 miles. That works out three cents a mile. But the fact is this bastard ripped me off big time, big time. And you're at a border. What can you do? The alternative is to try and, what, you get a room overnight or you get a bus back home so you can get your truck and bring it back and pick it up, that's all going to cost you the same, but just ripped off royal. And it, oh, it grates. You, you know what <laughs> I, I've heard some people say before? I'm trying to get get it all straight in my mind here as you're saying that. They carry this thing with them uh, that you plug in, pumps air, and, and they'll carry some plugs with them, and they actually fix it themselves. You ever heard yeah, of that? Probably. <laughs> I probably had panniers that carried more than a pair of tennis shoes. Ah, <laughs> oh, the joys of traveling light. <laughs> so isn't that the thing nowadays? A lot of people say just take the credit card and, and go. You know, you can get everything on the road. Well, it's interesting you're saying that, Jim, because um, when Birgit and I came across on the ferry from the UK to northern Spain, there were 200 motorcycles on this um, on this ferry. And I think 
we were probably the most loaded of all of them. But most people didn't look as if they were camping. Um, and we talked to a few of the guys and some of them are just sort of doing a blast from through the Pyrenees and back again over 10 days. And they're staying in hotels, that sort of stuff. So, you know, they're not carrying spare inner tubes. They're not carrying tents and sleeping bags and, and petrol stove and all this sort of stuff. We got talking to to one of the guys and he said, you know, I don't know how you, you budget travellers actually do it. How do you save the, enough money to be able to do the um, trips? And I said, well, you know, just take this this crossing. Um, you guys have all just walked up to your cabins with your crash helmets and your wash bags. Birgit and I have walked up with um, bottles of drinking water and Coke, our sandwiches for dinner tonight and our sandwiches for breakfast tomorrow morning and, and just listed the stuff. And I said, "That's this trip has cost us nothing other than the ferry. Um, and that's how we travel. And it's those little things that all add up really fast mm. to make budget traveling possible. Yep, that makes sense. And, and of course, you can be taken advantage of, like Graham was saying, you know, you run into a situation where you're stuck and you're stuck. It's as simple as that. You're going to have to pay what it costs mm -hmm. to, to get yourself on the road again. This is it. Yeah. Someone said on Facebook, you don't have some tools under the seat. All I've got under the seat is a USB charger. So I charge my phone and call for help. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate. <laughs> yeah, personally, I can't imagine not traveling with a minimal patching kit. you just got to have the basics. I, mean, I understand you've got a tube, but changing a, or patching a tube is not that big a deal. I mean, you need no, a tube of glue and a couple and a braider and you need some few patches and well, no, yeah, two tire levers, that's it. Tire levers, spanner, I, I just don't have any of that stuff in the UK. And that's where I left from. All that stuff is in Bulgaria. I can't uh, take tire okay. levers on a flight in right. hand luggage because they're considered a weapon. Because you, you so, went and bought the bike and picked it, or you bought the bike online and you picked it up in the UK and you're riding it back home. Yeah. That's, uh, I see. Okay. So, so I couldn't take tools with me because... Otherwise, I'm paying more than worth of the tools to check them in because you can't take them as hand luggage. So, and 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 so then you need what you know a, a 28 mil socket and a wrench to undo the back wheel. Then you need tire levers, and so you got to buy that stuff in the UK. And I, I, you know, if you saw pictures on Facebook, the the minimal capacity panniers and because i was it was only supposed to be a five-day trip so i didn't have any hair care products it was it was, it was a nightmare <laughs> was darling. A it was a nightmare and, um, and oh, i didn't i didn't have shaving foam all this stuff it was going to be a five-day trip i could do it and then when i got stuck in croatia then i start buying shampoo start buying shaving foam it was the underwear situation got critical i'd start buying soap powder so i hadn't catered for all of this i didn't have the capacity to cater for it so it all went desperately pear-shaped <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, sometimes that's what happens <laughs> but the good thing is you actually did find soap you you did find shaving cream and you survived Miraculously, they do sell that in other countries. Thank God. I thought it was only England where you could get those things. <laughs> well, on to our, our first topic of discussion. Who opened the door? Are you going or are you coming in? No, that was Birgit coming in. She's oh. Sorry, she's a bit tipsy. She's been in the bar for the last hour and a half. <laughs> Hi, Birgit. <laughs> she can't hear hey, us. Birgit. Everybody, says, everybody says hello. I, I think it's been um, the, yeah, the Spanish res that's, that's um, yeah, definitely a glow and a smile. So on to our, our first uh, topic here, personal journals. We've talked about this in different capacities before, about writing a journal. Of course, we have somebody on the panel who is a, an avid journal writer. But journals don't have to be written. They can be done on the computer. They can be done with video. They can be done with audio. So I, I guess the, the question here is, um, 
does everyone use a journal? Does everyone find value in writing a journal? And and I, I think some people have pointed out before that even doing social media is a form of journaling because as, as you're posting online, et cetera, I, I don't know, you know how, I, how I feel about that, but that's sort of recording your trip for others to see. And of course, it's a record for you as well. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I know a lot of people do it. Uh, we did on our trip, big trips, uh, but we were, we're we weren't regular because we didn't have to be. So we we wrote down what we thought was important, and it was definitely not, well, we had dinner here and dinner was great, and look at my my dinner, you know, that kind of stuff. It just bores me to tears, and it, I think it does most people. So we just recorded what mattered and what was exciting and interesting and milestones and things like that. So we're not what I would call heavy journalers by any stretch of the imagination, definitely on the light side. But I see a lot of people that are trying to grow their social media presence, for instance, and, and they journal and they're recording stuff and they're, they're writing, 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 writing. And many of the time I've, I've had emails or something from somebody, I, I don't have time to do that. I'm, I'm spending the evening, every evening, writing stuff and editing my video. Yeah, but you're supposed to be out there meeting the locals and you know, go to the pub and have a drink and relax and talk to people and see things. You're not supposed to be writing about what you saw while you were on the bike. You, know, you, you can spend too much time doing that. So I, I think it's, it's really hard to get that balance just right. Enough writing to, for your own future recording so that you have that history of what you've done and enough to keep your friends happy. But do you really want to write so much that it's in consuming and you could honestly write a story about how you how much you're doing your as, as you're writing you're just writing too much so you have you to could, work on that balance i think it's really difficult you could, you could write about everything you're missing like yeah the uh, i travel with uh, a couple of i called the tour tech twins in kazakhstan and they were fully sponsored and they had obligations to the sponsor and we were in this wonderful little town in kazakhstan and we'd met this guy who wanted us to stay at his house which they didn't want to do, but then wanted us to show us around, show us around the city, take us to a restaurant, take us to a club. And they said, no, no, we have to go and do our blog now and do our website. It's like you are, we are sitting in a bloody internet cafe, missing something that would actually be quite interesting for you to write about had we even experienced it. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, and and I, I see people also who, who come through and they say, Oh, I've got to update me blog. And so no, you if don't. it's that boring for you to do, imagine what it's like for us to have to read it. If, if, if you're not inspired by it, if you're not excited to do it, then go out and do something exciting. Yeah. I think you guys are hitting the nail firmly on the head here. The whole point of writing a journal um, has to revolve around the fact that it has to be easy to do. It has to be something that you look forward to doing, that you get something out and doesn't become a chore. And I've said before, and, and I still believe this, and I'm doing it on this trip, um, you don't have to, to write loads and loads. You can just write um, a small page, half a page. You can write down 20 keywords, which will bring back the memories later. But I think it's really important to write a journal. Um, and, you know, I carry mine in a leather pouch on my belt, so it's always there. 
And, you know, today we were standing in a queue and I had my pouch out, my diary out, and I just, I stood and I wrote three or four sentences just to describing where we were and how things smelt and the sounds that were happening. And it's, to me, it's those things that make a journal um, interesting. It's not only that I left here this morning at XYZ time and I'm aiming for there and along the way that I saw this, that and the other. It's it's how do things sound? How do things smell? What are people's names? What are the, the funny things that happen? And those things can all be put down in 20 keywords. They don't have to be reams and reams of text. And that, for me, is one of the problems with, with um, the idea of doing a blog. And I, like um, Graham and Grant, have come across people who are so focused on doing their blog and feel so guilty about not being up to date with their blogs that, that it actually starts to spoil their trip. And Birgit and I were talking about journal writing before we, we set off on this. And uh, Birgit's comment to me was, well, who's the diary for? Who's the journal for? And I said, well, it's for me, really, because I don't want to forget all of the magic things that happen. Um, and she said, yep, that's good, because this trip is for us, isn't it? It's not for anybody else. And I thought, yeah, that's that's how it should be. Exactly. I mean, but like motorcycling, everybody's going to have their own experience and ability. And so we'll take those things into account when deciding how to do their journal. And that is just in keeping with the wonderfully flexible um, thing that motorcycling is for us. There's a way that just slots in for us. There is no right and wrong way to do it, is there? I mean, Graham um, has come across something, a way of doing his journal, which I'm in absolute awe of and envious. And I keep meaning to ask him, Graham, when you're doing recording your journal as you're riding, what gear are you using to do this? I think we need to put in a footnote here. Um, how do you do the recording, Graham? Because we know you are the star journal writer here. You mean with the voice recorder? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm normally in Top Gear, and uh, we, I'm normally doing it on the KLR as well. I mean, because that's where I do my trips on. And I have a, I, I have put. I've, although I've got a modular helmet that flips up, I generally just have the visor up, and I have the 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 uh, the voice recorders in the little pocket in the tank bag. So I pick it up with my left hand, my clutch hand, and I hold it very close to my mouth. There's a lot of wind noise, but I know to shout because I know because I listen to it every day. I know what works and what doesn't, and I say whatever has just occurred. Um, like, you know, the guy in front has got his wing mirrors turned in. He clearly doesn't know I'm behind him or whatever little thing has happened. So it's and it just it comes out all the time because all the thoughts you have and it just becomes habit. I think perhaps if you were in a car, it would be the comment you'd make to your passenger. If you had a pillion and an intercom, it would be the same comments. But because I always ride solo, it's the observations, it's the thoughts, it's the experiences, it's, and like you say, also the smells. There were some wonderful, beautiful, autumnal smells when I was coming back, which just like evoke these feelings of, you know, end of year, which to me means it's my birthday's coming up or whatever. But it's, uh, there's nothing like, like smells to, to bring out feelings and memories and stuff. So rather than just have them, because if I'm, if I'm generally doing a trip to, to write a book about it, I speak them in my voice recorder and they get related to my diary and then eventually my book. So that's kind of how it works. I like that a lot. Idea because you keep those as well, don't you? Because we used those before one time when we, when we talked about that. We used, uh, or we did something with you. We used one of your original oh. recordings. 
Yeah, when I was accosted by that armed guy in a rack of unknown. Yeah. <laughs> unknown. Yeah. So, that's great to have. I mean, it's it's that sort of thing that that, that jogs the memory because I know for me, and I hopefully it's not just me. Most of the stuff I do, I forget. And it's only when I have a photograph or, or the times where I've written a journal um, where I can go back and read it. And when I do, you know, I have a couple of journals that I, that I enter in sort of sporadically. And when I do, I go back and it just it brings back that exact day. I mean, I picture it perfectly and it's a, it's a ride or a part of a ride or an event that I never would have even remembered. It just would be gone. Yeah, it's 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 so easy. I, one of my favorite um, phrases for travel is that you're on intake overload. As in, you're just like a, a funnel for all of this information and colors and sights and sounds and smells and everything else. And it's all just been hammered into you every minute of the day. Um, and some of those things are incredibly important. I mean, Graham was just describing how those smells affected him. Um, and, well, in three weeks' time, when there have been other smells, maybe um, he'll have forgotten that moment. You know, I was thinking about a day that I was sitting um, on a small hill um, on the edge of Kampala bus station. Now, Kampala is the capital city of Uganda. And this bus station is just not how you would expect a bus station to look. It's rutted dirt and there are no parking bays. It's a bit like watching a beehive. And most of the buses aren't, you know, full-length buses. They're minibuses. So sort of Toyota Hiace um, type of size. And I was sitting on the side of the hill and I was writing about the noises, the people shouting to each other, the, the bus driver's assistants shouting and banging on the sides of the buses, the travellers um, rushing to try and find a ride and shouting shouting at each other, um, the engines roaring, um, the sound of the guy who was repairing wheel rims um, because of all the potholes and the banging on those, the tyre repair stores and all that, and the dogs and the motorbike taxis buzzing in and out. I mean, all of those things I would have forgotten about if I hadn't been sitting on the side of the hill and, and as I observed writing those things down. But it was the smells too, the smell of diesel the cooking food from the stalls and there was a bakery behind me and wow the smells that were coming from there absolutely fantastic but it was also how the soil smelt as the heat of the day was getting up and of course there was rubbish around and that wasn't smelling quite so nice um but it's like the colors too you know a man wearing a turquoise shirt wandered across and this guy just looked so cool and so relaxed and of course, the turquoise shirt reminded me of him. And when I was writing down in my journal, I was also writing about um, the, the women's wrap around clothes. Now, anybody who's traveled in Africa knows how vibrantly colorful these are. Did I ever tell you the story of um, President Mobutu and the women's wrap around clothes? I don't think so. Oh, I've got to tell you this story. So, um, after um, civil war in um, the Congo, which turned the country into um, Zaire, um, the person in charge was um, a man called um, Mobutu. And, um, yeah, he was a bit, um, yeah, one of the guys that you don't want to be in charge of a country. He's, um, yeah, um, bribery and corruption and lining his own nest and looking after the, um, his own um, friends and so on. And there was a lot of cruelty um, particularly for the little people. Anyway, so one day President Mobutu is driving along in his Mercedes um, entourage along with everybody else, you know, sort of convoy of 10 vehicles, all blacked out windows, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he looks out of the window and he sees quite a lot of women walking along the sides of the streets and they're all wearing these wraparound um, robes. 
with pictures of him on. And he says, ah, my people, they love me. My people, look, they even wear my photographs on their clothes. What he didn't realize was that the, the biggest photographs of him were all positioned on these ladies' backsides. So what they were doing was they were sitting on his head every time they sat down. <laughs> so it was the biggest insult they could make. <laughs> Good one. Well, I, back to the, the, the journaling thing. I was going to ask uh, Grant when you were mentioning about, you know, you guys did uh, intermittent ones, and, and that was a long time ago you did that trip. Do you ever go back to those journals? Have you ever been back into them? Have you ever found a use for them? Well, they're actually on the website right now. <laughs> Our entire story from 87 on is on the website, horizonsunlimited.com slash Johnson. And that's that's all our story and some of the a bunch of the pictures. It's it's all there. The pictures are really tiny. And one of these days, now that I've rescanned them all, I need to put in bigger ones. But these were done in the days when a 640 screen was enormous. So they're they're small, but it's all there. We just what we did with that journal originally was turn it into emails home to family. Now this is back in '87, but we were sending emails via CompuServe, and those emails were the actual start of the website. So the journaling can be a really good start of something. But I think my point here really is you need to make sure, and I think Sam said the same thing, who's it for? Birgit said it, that's right. Birgit said it. Who's this for? And I think you really need to define for yourself what your audience is. Is it you? Is it your family? Is it the wide world? Or you want to be famous? Um, are you going to make this a, turn this into a living? And all of us can tell you it's hard. <laughs> or maybe you just want to keep it for the future. I mean, look at Elspeth Beard, who, who had her journals oh. from 30 years ago and then put exactly. a, a book together, which turns out incredible. Jim, I was just thinking exactly the same thing about Elspeth Beard. We were talking about, um, uh, you know, how she did um, her book. And she was saying that it was a combination of notes that she made along the way, long letters home. And um, recorded tapes. So she was telling people at home, um, you know, in cassette tapes about where she'd been and what she'd been up to and the people she'd met and all of these sorts of things. And then she was um, posting those home. So her book was written as a combination of all of those different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so easy now, isn't it, with the internet? Yeah. I was using uh, cassette tapes to take a, make a record of what I was photographing. Never even occurred to me to do a, a diary type thing in the cassette. I just use it. Photograph 27 is blah, 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 blah. And that's how I turn uh, all my photographs into a database so that I know what the photograph is, where it was taken, et cetera. Which is you know, a really recording useful thing. Is, recording's fantastic, isn't it? I was talking to a guy a few weeks back, and um, he's been on the road for four years now, um, not by motorcycle, but wherever he goes, he records people and the local noises so he'll go into a market or he'll go into a, um, a local nightclub and um, record the music that's being played or he'll record the sound of conversation in a restaurant or you know whatever else it is a fiesta and he played with some of the recordings and I thought this is absolutely fantastic what a wonderful way to do things yeah and not only that, you get your own voice in there, which I think is really neat. Because when I think yes. of, of what yep. Graham has there, even just he's yelling into his recorder while he's riding, you've got your own voice. There's intonations in your voice that you know better than anybody. And also just the this, even the change of your voice over the years. You know, you can go back and listen to those. The, the only downside with it, all of this sort of stuff, including photographs, is managing it all. How do you keep track of it and manage it and not end up with just reams and reams of data on a disk drive that eventually becomes obsolete? That's the difficult yeah. thing. 
Yeah, and the hardest part about voice recording is if you're making notes from it, you've got to transcribe it at some point. Mm -hmm. So don't go on and on and on and on because it's a lot of transcribing. And if you're shouting into it, it's really hard. I'm sure Graham can um, go along with that, but trying I'm to translate just, what you said. Well, but I'm doing it at the end of every day. I mean, I uh, wouldn't want to do that at the end of a trip. No. So I, I'm, I'm quite regimented about this. and It's something I get a lot of satisfaction out of. It's a bit of a ritual for me. And if life gets too hectic, that two or maybe three days go by and I haven't done my diary, I am agitated. It becomes absolutely top priority. So and it's something I've been doing every day for over 30 years of my life. So uh, and and it's relatively easy to do it because I've, I've been doing it that that frequently so i don't end up with reams of unedited stuff i mean i've got a shitload of photos on my disk drive that are unedited <laughs> that's another story because that's not i'm not as dedicated with the photographs as i am with the the writing and the recording of it but but changing the subject slightly on the whole blog and recording it bit um and and i think a lot of people can get a little bit obsessed with the popularity and the Facebook likes that their posts are getting. We're all guilty of that to a degree, I think. But um, I've got a friend who I've spoken about before who'd originally done a trip from Holland down to South America, but currently he's kayaking around uh, South, South America. And um, it's uh, something I know nothing about, but the photographs are beautiful. His writing is wonderful. And I love getting a little update and reading his blog, which can't gets updated maybe every three weeks. And for me, it's escapism. It's learning about something I don't know about. It's spectacular scenery. He's traveling on his own. And it's a blog that I relish reading. It's a wonderful thing. So although I'm not about to buy a kayak and start doing that, it's a world I don't know, and it's something I really enjoy. So perhaps when I get a little bit cynical about, you know, nobody, you know, if, if you do a bike ride and don't blog, it doesn't really exist. Just as I'm sure there's people who love to read it, even whether they're travellers or not, I think putting it out there gives people the choice at least whether they want to see what you're doing. I mean, it might start off just for family and friends, but maybe it does develop an interest. And, and it's just like, you know, a TV programme you don't like. If you don't like it, you don't watch it, you don't read it. So at least you've got given the choice, haven't you? I think that you, you've hit a nail very firmly on the head there, Graham. I mean, the point is, you, you learn so much when you're on a big trip. Why not save it and share it? Um, and, you know, I don't have the inclination to do a blog, um, but I do like to share the information that I've got. And there's no way I could have written my books without my journals. Um, and I know that I used to write more in my journals um, when I was traveling solo than when I started traveling with Birgit. But I was very lucky because Birgit also writes a journal. So quite often we would be sitting writing our journals at the same time. And that was absolutely fascinating because her observations for the day were frequently very, very different from mine. And that meant that I was getting um, double value out of the day, um, value that I didn't even know was there. And what a beautiful thing that you're both sitting there in silence writing your journals, as opposed to both sitting there in silence scrolling through Facebook. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I've seen a number of blogs where he says and she says, and that can be very interesting too, because as you say, it's two very, very different perspectives. Yeah. It can be very interesting to do it that way. You know, we've, we see that on our, the blogs on our website, um, 
there's lots of people that do various he says, she says, and that works, and different perspectives, different ways of looking at things. And it's interesting to see the the numbers of people reading their blogs grow because you can subscribe to the blog so that whenever there's an update, somebody you know, the writer will send out an update and everybody gets a notice. Oh, there's a change, there's an update, and they go to the website and they look at it. And those numbers definitely grow. So it's not just the family immediately, although that may be all you have initially, but people start reading and they start, they find these stories, they, they're searching on some place that you just wrote about and that comes up in the Google search and people start finding your blog and they start reading about it. But it still comes back to, are you writing for them, you or your family? And I think that's something that everybody needs to really think about and make a decision on because that affects how hard you work at it, how much you write and what the tone of it is. So if it's personal, then that's one thing. That's that's a different thing from writing for the world. Yeah, going back to Birgit's question, you know, who is the journal for? You could actually step back from that as well and say, from the trip, who is the trip for? Because yes. I often wonder if that gets lost. We, we just passed a vehicle the other day, yesterday, I guess it was, and it had a website name on it. And it's basically just somebody, it's an over, somebody overlanding, they're, they're going around the world, it's their vacation, but they've got a website, they've got their vehicle all decked out and with, with their name on it, etc. And you sort of wonder... What is the purpose of that? I mean, do you do that if you're going to Florida for a vacation or if you're going to Hawaii or something like that? Do you set up a website and you do blogging and tell everybody about it? Maybe people are doing this. I don't know. But it, it sort of begs the question, at least to me, what is the purpose of the trip? Are you going to be a professional traveler? Is this going to be you know, something you plan on making money off? Or are you getting lost in that whole thing of thinking this is how it's supposed to be done? Or maybe it's such a big deal to them that they're so proud and excited of what they're doing and they're not doing it to brag but they for the, i mean like my first sort of big trip was from colorado up to alaska and which was huge i didn't even need a carne or a visa they all spoke the same language i mean canada's a bit dodgy but you know mostly <laughs> and uh, so i guess it's all a matter of perspective i mean i posted some pictures of my trip on the trout fuxton owners group and somebody wrote on their trip of a lifetime and I thought, yeah, but I have one of those every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate that trip of a lifetime saying. I hear that so often. It's just, oh, oh, you poor soul. I, I really feel sorry for you. <laughs> you want to have regular big trips that are all trips of a lifetime. Um, so, you know, my commute home to him was a trip of a lifetime. It was, I'm not putting it down. It was a wonderful trip. But um, it's, it's people's perspective on it, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah, well, we all start off. I mean, when I first started writing, I was 16 years old and rode around my neighborhood, and that was as far as I got. And then I actually rode out to, uh, I rode to Langley. Langley is about 30 minutes from where I lived now, but it was an adventure. I'd never been there before. I'd, I had to drive through the countryside down a, a road I'd never been on. That was an adventure, so that was really cool that day. And I told my mother, I rode to Langley today. And she said, you what? <laughs> That's a long way. Well, yeah, to me, then it was. Now, it's, of course, it's a whole different story. But we all have to keep pushing our boundaries and going to somewhere else and not use the words trip of a lifetime, but <laughs> I've now moved on and I've done something more and now I'm going to do something better next time and I'm going to have a bigger adventure next time. Uh, I think we need to keep growing and that's the important part. Just keep growing who you are and what your parameters are and where you're going to go to next, which is going to help you grow more again. It's, yeah. it's trying something different every time, isn't it? Yes, always. 
Always. The day you stop learning is the day they put you in the ground. My uh, my mate who I, who I travel with up the Isle of Man had a little phrase I heard before. He said, every day is a school day, meaning yeah. you mm-hmm. learn something every day. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, that's you know, when Birgit and I were getting ready to do the trip down into Portugal, um, I started having a meander through just because, you know, I like to learn a little bit about where I'm going to. And um, I clicked on somebody's blog just purely and simply because the title in it was um, Off the Beaten Track Campsites. And I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. So I went there and it was literally somebody's blog. And they were describing where they'd been and the things they'd seen. But they were also weaving in there um, the little campsites and so on that they'd come across that they hadn't found in the mainstream sources. And I thought, yeah, that's that's kind of nice. So that's one of the reasons why you would write a blog, because you want to share the unusual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a little concern always with sharing the campsites things. Um, <laughs> there's something about the Internet just makes it very, well, obviously very easy just by the nature of it to find anything. So I always get this feeling of that, um, that in some cases, in some areas, you wouldn't have people going into these areas unless they were those type of people who really respected an area or really went through the, the work of finding an area, whereas the internet makes it searchable very easily. And these sites that list the, the different campsites, I mean, we've noticed in some of the spots that we use across Canada, um, in the past few years, the traffic has increased tremendously uh, to these spots. And, and at first, we're, we're sort of shocked. And I say we, it's Elizabeth uh, and myself. We're sort of shocked by the number of people. But it's not only the number of people. It's the number of foreign people. When you get talking, you realize, oh, this person's from France. This person's from Germany. All very nice to speak with. Um, but one of the problems is a lot of these spots, most of these spots that, that are posted up and, and turns out these people are finding them on the Internet, they have no facilities there. So what you get is you get an overrun campsite with garbage and toilet paper and everything put oh, all over the place. It, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think the reason is I think there's a lot of apps and there's a lot of things out there promoting, hey, you know, post every little spot you can find where you can stay for free on the site. But I don't know as the responsibility aspect has been added into it saying that, you know, hey, this is, the, this is the waiver with this app. You know, if you use these sites, you need to learn your ways of dealing with your waste. There's ways to deal with your waste in the wilderness or even if you have to carry it out or pack it out. I think that seems to be lacking because we're seeing spots that are completely trashed. These are beautiful spots. One place in particular, a lake, I even took some photographs. People are going to the washroom right down at the water's edge. And it's it's really disappointing. That's, that's one concern I have about posting all those spots on the internet. And there's nothing you can do about it, I know. No, the main but, thing is you need to educate people. It's all yeah. what it's all about. It's the old backpacker's I mean, ethos. You pack it in, you pack it out. I love um, things that encourage people to think, wow, that sounds really interesting. Um, oh, I could do that. Fabulous. I love that because we live in an absolutely amazing world. And I've said this before, too, but there are too many people telling us that the world we live in sucks and it's full of bad people. Well, what complete and utter rubbish. But at the same time, when more people go traveling, then they have to treat the world with the respect that it's due. And doing what you've just been describing, that's no respect at all, and that sucks. Um, All of us, every single adventure motorcyclist, every single traveller should be working on the rule, um, leave nothing behind you except for your tracks. Yep. Well, um, the only other thing I was going to ask about this was for you guys. As far as media for for, um, doing your journal, for um, recording your trip... 
Do you guys think there's much difference between the choice between writing and video and audio? Do you think one's better than the other? Because I'll just give you my sort of quick thought on it was that the one thing about writing it down is one, first of all, the format never changes. You're not going to have to change it from your written journal to another journal because they no longer use that format when it comes to computer that is the case. You may have to change your format as you go along as the years go by and the and the storage formats, et cetera, change. Um, also, sorting-wise, it tends to be easier to flip through pages on a book uh, that you've written to read the different things you've done. Whereas if you're if you're looking at video or listening to audio, you sort of have to go through that. Do you guys, like a, a linear fashion, right from start to finish, do you guys have any sort of preference on that? Um, I'm totally on written word. I mean, whether I'm reading a book or whether I'm writing a diary, I, I like that format for the reasons you just said, um, because, you know, I've got videos that were, that are on old hard drives. I'm never going to watch them because I'm never going to put in that hard drive and that find it. You've got to have a really good filing system if you're going to use like digital versions of your of your trip, be it audio or, or video. You, you better have a good filing system. So many people don't. They dump their photos on their computer. They don't even bother editing out the crap ones. You're lucky if they're dated. And um, if, if, you're that, if, if you're that good at, at, at filing them, then that's fine. But I've got so much stuff on old hard drives, and I might know it's there, but I'd be hard-pressed to find it. And for that reason, my diaries are there in date order, if I want to look out for what, and, and the very first time we ever spoke, Jim, you picked out a day, you said, what were you doing on August the 12th, 1991? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, and I picked it out. It was, and I remember, because the first time we spoke, I, I remember it was, it was the day of my friend's wedding. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's wow, right. you remember too, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, and I could do it like that. I, 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 don't, I don't write. <laughs> My handwriting is so illegible that if I print, I can read what I've written. If I handwrite, uh, I can pick out the odd word. It's really, really, really bad. So I type everything. Mm. Okay. That it's makes... the only way that works for me. Well, I'll make notes on my phone you, if you I have print to. print that off. Yeah. But it's all there. I mean, we've got still got the emails that we wrote in 1987 on our computer, and they're findable and readable. So you just have to keep moving your stuff forward. If I didn't have it all on my computer, it'd be hopeless. Susan's got stuff from projects she worked on 30 years ago, still in there, still mm -hmm. all available. Carrying around journals and books, are you crazy? I, it's just not possible. We've got too much stuff. But you're a bit too of a hard. techie too. You know, yes. you're into that, and you don't mind doing that. Not everybody is. No, absolutely. And what Macs and I'll put a little tiny Mac around here. The problem with a Mac, I find, is that people just let the Mac organize it. Problem is, you can't figure it out. I'm, try I'm still trying to figure out where my iPhone files are and how to access them. You I struggle can't. with it all the time. It drives me insane. You can't. It's designed to stop you from doing that. I know that that definitely know. is a Mac thing. They don't want you to think. They want you to use keywords and search. But you certainly can. I I'm I'm a, more of a PC organizer. When I work on a Mac, but I use a PC organization thought process, I guess you could say, in that I yep. put everything into folders and subfolders. It's just so much easier. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can actually find stuff that way. <laughs> and everything in one. So if you want to grab everything and copy it to something, you can grab a folder and say, okay, I know I have everything in that folder and drag it over. Yeah, well, all my data is about, it's just pushing four terabytes. Mm. So that's the only issue. Yeah. But it's all doable. It's all findable. <laughs> four terabytes, my God. That's not counting video. That's no video. <laughs> 
the video is terrifying. <laughs> oh, I mean, Graham says something, but he's not going to look at the video. Who wants to look at their video? Because really, in the end, when you what you find is you've got a ton of garbage video <laughs> with a few mm-hmm. key moments. I think if we could probably all learn, you know, that the, to take six to ten seconds of video and then call it quits for whatever we're filming, maybe you could put something together easy easier. But you know, most of us don't do that. Yeah, there's actually I'm software just, now that, that will, when you're doing your video, like uh, it's not a GoPro, it's, there's another one, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a camera that you can actually do your videoing and then you tell your software, make something out of that and it edits it for you. Yeah. And turns out some, all the exciting bits are all in there. You, I mean, it doesn't do a great job, but it's an edited video. It's amazing. Mm. And one of the other problems I find with video is that generally people just want to put music to it, which for me just doesn't cut it. I, I want to hear the sounds. Uh, I want to hear yep. the conversation. I want to hear the background and, and what's going on. How about you, Sam? What, I mean, I, I think you're probably a handwritten person, aren't you? Oh, without a handwritten person. But um, I was just having a little smile here because one of the things that I was doing in prep for this trip was um, uh, clearing off uh, the memory cards from my GoPro. And I'd got five full memory cards and I'm downloading um, all of this stuff, and I'm thinking, um, and I do do an awful lot of um, six to ten second bits. Um, my friend Ian Harper has taught me the value of doing that. Um, it's much easier to edit together um, a movie, but the editing side of it is something that I'm still learning. I never seem to have enough time to to learn how to do that properly. I'm in absolute awe of people who have mastered the skill of editing and putting together interesting things. And Ian does um, quite a lot of editing, and he puts together um, sections where, yeah, there are the natural sounds of the scene, there are people talking, and there are sections with music. And, um, yeah, I, I really like that combination. Um, it tweaks an awful lot of senses. But one of the things that I'll be doing when I go back is um, going through all of those memory files with uh, my finger firmly over the delete button, I think. But the fact yeah, of the matter is, when you go back and you listen to your memories, which is what it is, um, on video, it's one thing to play a video and then press stop and and maybe make notes or whatever, and it's another to flip through your journal and read right from the pages you've written. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, think I, I like my journal. journal. Is easier. Paper, yes. Reading paper is easier. I'm a big book person, and I although I use a Kindle simply because I can carry 200 books in it as opposed to a pocketbook, but searching on a kindle or searching electronic to find what you're looking for and you can't remember the word you can't remember the name of the place try and find a place when you can't remember the name of it it's we impossible search for it grant <laughs> yeah right good luck <laughs> i get that sometimes when i walk in the store and they'll say can i help you find something no because i don't remember what i came in for <laughs> like if, you, if you can tell me that i'd do great i was just going to interject here we, we had um before this episode, not long before we were going to record here, we just put it out there and asked for any listener questions. Questions. Well, we sort of got inundated with questions, actually. We've got a whole bunch of questions, and we're going to do most of them Fantastic. next month. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. Um, but anyway, I was going to say, we picked out a few. Actually, Elizabeth, our producer, picked out a few just while we've been talking and gave me one here. So I'm going to throw this one at you, and, and you guys tell me what you think. Teresa K is the name, and um, the, the message is, everyone knows that you should bring a proper tool kit while traveling should say in brackets Graham um, has there ever been a time when you've had to MacGyver a tool because you didn't have the proper tool or have had to use your mad skills and wits to modify and adapt it to a situation you guys ever had that yeah um, 
I think I've told you the vice grip story on more than one occasion, but I will always, apart from last trip, take vice grips with me because they have numerous uses. And when I broke off a, a brake lever just to the bare stub, the, they were mini vice grips and they just clamped on and they were perfect. And since then, I've seen photos of people who have used them on snapped off um, rear brake levers and gear changes and uh, they have infinite amount of uses. So uh, vice grips are definitely a, a multi-tool. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to second, day, second that. <laughs> definitely. Do you have a choice of vice grip that you use, Graham? Is, or like, is it one of the straight jaws and needle nose ones? Is there one in particular you like? Uh, well, the mini ones, because uh, they work better for replacement levers. And I mean, you can buy these cheap Chinese ones. They are really cheap and they even have little rubber bits for better grip which is a tool, isn't really necessary. But when it becomes a brake lever, it's actually quite a nice little addition. <laughs> yeah, I carry a pair that are just the, what I would call a standard vice grip. It's sort of a curved jaw because you can do most things with that. And uh, once on a trip, we were in South America and on terrible, terrible corrugations. And my fairing was flapping so badly that all the screws that hold the screen on were breaking off. And they were, I was watching these screws go ping, 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 and finally I had to stop and get some more out and duct tape it on and got to a place and I found some bits of metal and I was going to make a, a strengthening bracket, only I needed a vice to be able to cut it. I had a hacksaw blade, half a hacksaw blade, which is all I carry, and wrap a bit of duct tape around one end of it and I've got a handle, but trying to hacksaw a piece of aluminum in one hand with a hacksaw blade piece in the other hand is really difficult <laughs> so this is this is just crazy so i popped down this put the bike on the center stand popped out the side stand tied the uh, a strap which we've talked about many times you've got to carry these tie down straps with you tied this strap around the front wheel to the side stand so that it was rigid and really tight got out a pair of um vice grips clamped the piece of aluminum to the side stand base and hacksawed away. I had a wonderful vice. Worked great. Mm -hmm. So there's a bodge for you. Yeah, they're pretty handy, aren't they? The things that you can get vice grips to do. I mean, they're sort of a butcher tool, you know, in the shop. If you if you're oh, yeah. anybody, it's the when you start pulling out the vice grips, then oh, you're you're butchering something. But uh, it's true. I mean, you, you get a rusted bolt or a rusted nuthead or something like that. I mean, provided you you know what you're doing with them, you only get so many chances uh, to try it. But um, yeah, handy devices, no doubt. Anything else? Anyone else had a MacGyver? And you know the MacGyver thing. It's funny how everybody knows that name. That comes from a, a television show, The MacGyver Show, which I'm, I'm sure, does anyone not know that? Actually, I didn't know it, but I was just guessing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it was it's a television show. It's still playing, show. you can get it. Come on, it's still on? <laughs> well, it, it's a yeah. rerun somewhere. Mm. I saw an episode of it um, a few months back. Um, There's a new um, version of it. Oh, I, was I, was say, I thought you meant the other one was still running because I was going to say, what do they do? He's, he's in an old age home now and he has a MacGyver thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is definitely an old episode. I think the, um, the guy was wearing 1970s hairdo and that sort of thing. Mm. Yep. Yep. What was the gist of the plot? He was just a guy with, a, with an interesting haircut who could um, supposedly <laughs> make things. I mean, if he was stuck in, I'll just make this up, but if he, was if he fell through an outhouse into the, into the part where all the, the, the crap is, he could get out with the chewing gum and some uh, string or, or floss or something like that. Like, you know, he, he would come up with all different ways to make something out of nothing. 
And it was just really interesting the way they did it. It was very somewhat believable from what I remember. And um, it, it just became, that became an, a word to MacGyver something. Yeah. All right. The other word that's used is bodge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's mm-hmm. what I'm more familiar with. Yeah. Isn't, isn't bodge sort of derogatory, though, in a way? Isn't it kind of saying that you're sort of, um, you're doing something, but you're not doing it correctly? Yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah, it, is. yeah. it depends on the tone of voice, doesn't it? I mean, a bodge can be very cynical, but at the same time, there can be some admiration for somebody who bodges something and makes it work properly. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I've stitched a tent together with um, dental floss in the past when, you know, when it snapped and um, used a, a Coke can, just cut the ends off it and wrapped that around a tent pole when I've broken the tent pole. So, that, I mean, that's, that's bodging. But if it works, it does the job, then that's what matters. Or the Coke can to hold a uh, sprocket on. Figure Mm -hmm. that one out. (laughs) Front sprocket nut comes off. You've got to hold it on somehow. Cut a Coke can in half, push it up against the sprocket, put a bit of duct tape over it or a zip tie to hold it in place, and off you go. Works fine. You mean like a speed nut? Kind (laughs) of. It works very well. I know a guy did that for about a thousand kilometers. Mm. You know, while we're talking about tools and bodges, I mean, one of the problems, everybody knows about Ewan and Charlie, for example, setting off with two um, snap-on toolkits because they've been given them. And I've met an awful lot of people since then who say, well, I know I'm carrying too much weight. And I'm not too sure what tools to carry. And, you know, I'm just saying, look, just go around your bike um, and have a look at all of the different sizes and so on and, and pare down that toolkit. I was talking to a chap um, a couple of weeks back and he'd bought one of these um, sockets and Allen key and star nut and all the rest of it, all singing, all dancing, ratchet sets, um, really cheap. And I said to him, so you're going to carry that on your bike, are you? Well, yeah. So you've got about two kilos worth of weight there. How many of those do you actually need? Um, he called me back um, about a week later and he said, hmm, I'm down to about um, half of that. And even there, yeah. I think I'm being generous to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. But I do like Graham's vice grips. I think that's yeah. a fantastic idea. Unfortunately, Graham, I've only got a set that are about 12 inches long. And we did contemplate putting them in our panniers for this trip. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I contemplated, Birgit raised her eyebrows so high that she was scratching the back of the neck with them. So I decided <laughs> to leave them out. <laughs> I think you can get away with a six inch pair, it's just fine. Although I really like an eight inch pair. <laughs> yeah. Depends. If you're going to darkest Africa, I would take the eight inch. Otherwise, six inch is fine. Yeah. But yeah, getting your toolkit down, getting the perfect toolkit. I mean, we have uh, seminars at uh, various events where we talk about what's the perfect toolkit. And the reality is there isn't one because it's different for everybody and every bike. And skill level. I know people who don't carry a toolkit at all because I have no idea what to do with it, you know. Mm -hmm. So why would I carry a toolkit? And somebody else says, yes, but I carry a toolkit that I don't know how to use either. But somebody will come along who does know how to use it, and I've got the tools there for him to use. This so, is it. It's like carrying a map in Cyrillic. You don't have to read it, but as long as the locals can, they'll tell you yeah. where you are. So. Exactly, yeah. yeah that's a good point. Having the right tools for your bike, whether you know how to use them or not, that just makes sense, doesn't it? Infinite yep. sense. And, and a manual. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Two rights. I mean, we st- we have um, a climber um, for our um, bikes. It covers both bikes, and this thing's about two and a half inches um, thick. Are we carrying it on this trip? 
Absolutely, we are too right, right down on the bottom one of the panniers, and its um, its weight is well worthwhile. Um, the number of times being able to sit and look at that, no no Wi-Fi signal or anything else, um, yeah, and it saved our bacon many times. My uh, the guy I rode with up to the Isle of Man, we left his house early in the morning. It wasn't even light, and uh, I wanted to go past the Thruxton race circuit to get a picture of my bike in front of the Thruxton sign. We got there; it wasn't even light yet. It was like, oh, bollocks! <laughs> had to use the had to use the flash. Didn't really work out. Got back on the main road, heading north to to get the ferry to the Isle of Man, and I lost him in my mirrors. And then eventually I pull over and I wait. And he comes up, he said, I don't know what's wrong. He said, he's on a four-cylinder Suzuki Bandit. He said, I don't know what's wrong. He said, it won't go over 60 miles an hour. It's just choking out. It's no good. He said, look, I've still got enough time. My ferry's later than your ferry. I've got enough time to turn around, get the other bike and go back. You keep going. I'll see you on the Isle of Man. Okay, then. It's just getting light. So I carry on and I see him back at the Isle of Man. Turns out when he's got time, when he gets back and looks at his bandit, all the tools that he'd wrapped up in a cloth and put under his seat, the cloth had come undone and got sucked into the air cleaner. <laughs> no! Oh, no! <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> That's okay. I had a shirt get sucked into the uh, air cleaner, or the intake, and it was my shirt that I was wearing. <laughs> right. This is in the days of open intakes, no no air filters. <laughs> the shirt was a little long and sloppy, and just got sucked in. And what's this, what's going on here? And the yeah. bike's not running right, and I'm, I can hardly move. Something yeah, wrong here. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> was Crunt, was this in your um, was this in your hippie days? Sort of um, flowing caftan, and you had long hair and a, a long droopy moustache and that sort of stuff. Yeah, except for the caftan. <laughs> it was just oh, a right, loose okay. shirt. <laughs> The hair was, you're right, and the rest of it. It was a long time ago. What can I say? I was a child of the 60s. You're not that old. Can't possibly be, Grant. You'd be surprised. Okay, we'll move on rapidly then. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Peter Barkley writes, Hi, guys. Recently found your show and love it. Currently catching up on the episodes. Anyway, my question. I've done a few two-weeker Europe trips, mostly two up, but he's itching to do a longer trip, a month or more. Uh, but critically... Uh, he says he wants to do some off-road. Uh, he really worries about the weight and if he can manage it because he's on a, a 1290 KTM. And he says, I can get the balls of my feet on the ground. Any advice on how to manage would help. Is the bike just too big for it? So um, he, uh, he obviously he's, he's concerned about the size of his bike and, and riding some off-road. But um, also with this, we're, we're thinking, well, what things do you guys take into account when you're loading your bike for an adventure trip? Do you, uh, do you think about the actual overall weight, which we have talked a little bit about before, um, luggage choices, you know, your gross vehicle weight, which I think very few people seem to be aware of. Grant? There's a lot to talk about here. We could be on this for days, but the highlights always, 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 and everybody I'm positive will completely agree is take less. That's the biggest issue. Um, we were coming back from the um, Can West meeting a, few, a couple of weeks ago, and there was two guys on the ferry, both solo, and the amount of stuff they had was absolutely staggering. Full panniers, something strapped on top of the panniers, huge tank bag, and three roll bags on one bike and four roll bags on the other. They were just packed to the top chairs, everything, you name it. It was incredible. And I had a little chat with him and he said, yeah, this is our first big trip. And yeah, we, we've kind of figured out that we need to reduce it a little bit. 
you think? So, <laughs> I mean, you have to figure out what do you need as opposed to what do you want. And everybody needs far less than they think they need. And that's half the problem. You know, what do you actually use every single day? And if you don't use it every single day, you don't need it. So less, less, less. It, it's a, something that we all go through. And I know every time I pack for a new big trip, I look at it and go, oh, God, I got too much stuff. And I need to I start hauling stuff out and getting rid of it. And partway through the trip, you send another box of crap home. That's, that's normal. But less is probably the first and foremost requirement. If he's traveling solo, stuff in his pannier and a small roll bag, that's it. That's all you need. Any more than that, and he's got too much stuff. Yeah, sure. you don't need punch repair kits. You don't need tie levers. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that, Greg. <laughs> Greg, when, you that first, when we talked about this before, you'd said one of the first things you, you think of is off-road training for this guy, for yes. Peter. Yeah, that's the other one. Um, you want less stuff and you want to know how to ride the bike because if you know what you're doing off-road, a comfortable, experienced expert, shall we say, off-road rider – can ride anything with a ridiculous amount of weight at a stunning, shocking speed over ridiculous stuff that you just can't think can even be possible to ride at all on anything. And, oh, my God, he's doing it on a fully loaded 1200. Well, yeah, it's experience and understanding how to ride. I think the number one recommendation for this guy is take less stuff. But first, go for some off-road training and learn how to ride the bike. It's amazing what you can do on these big bikes but you have to understand the basics. You have to have basic technique. You need to be able to do tight U-turns in a parking lot or you've got a, a hairpin corner on the gravel road. Well, how do you deal with it? If you don't know how to do that and you're using street skills, you're in trouble. And it's going to be terrifying and it's going to turn you off uh, off-road motorcycling entirely, especially on something as big as a 1290 KTM. I mean, those things aren't small. So... And if it goes wrong, and this is where people get really terrified, if it goes wrong, they fall over and they scratch their bike. Well, okay, first off, it's an adventure bike. It's going to get scratched. That's part of the patina of experience. But you need to get past that fear of, the, of riding the big bike in the gravel and what it's going to do in gravel and what it's going to feel like. And it twitches and wiggles and does funny things. And that's all terrifying to a street rider because on the street, it doesn't twitch and wiggle and slide around and move about. So... Off-road training, yeah, off-road training, more off-road training. Take a beginner course, take an advanced course two or three months later, take another course a year later, take another course a year later. I, I've been riding off-road for 50 years, and every spring I go out and practice, do the basic exercises, do the U-turns, do the hard stop in the dirt, and just remind myself what it's all about. You need to practice. It's, it's a learned skill. On the KTM theme, I had a 950 KTM Adventure, which was too tall for me. And I could just about touch the ground. That takes a lot of your confidence and ability away. I haven't done a lot of off-roading. Well, yeah, I've done some. I haven't had a lot of off-road instruction. And so with my lack of skill and the, my lack of uh, height, I suppose, based on a bike. That, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 5'10", 5'11", on a good day, but that bike was still too tall for me. And I, I want to have the flat, my feet flat on the ground when I'm on terrain that I can't manage. And uh, it just it takes all your confidence away, I think, if you don't have 
good control of your motorcycle. And the two ways you're going to get that is one, as Grant says, with a lot of off-road training, or two, being able to put your feet flat on the ground when you're in a position where you feel unsteady. He did say he could get both feet on the ground, so that's well, a start. Well, the balls of his feet, I the think. Balls. Yeah, the balls is a start. Um, the other little quick, quick tip is soften up the suspension all around. Mm-hmm. Look, remove all the preload. Drop it to the bottom. And or, that gives you another inch or two, at least. Or carry more stuff. <laughs> well, that'll do it, but that's the wrong method. <laughs> I think just the fact that Peter's asking, is the bike too big for it? The bike may be too big for him at the, at this point. Uh, in other words, it's skill level. I mean, Grant, you said you know you get a an amazing rider. They can ride a twelve ninety, load it up, and they can still make it do incredible things. And have you scratching your head of how they possibly pulled it off? But if you think the bike's too big for you, it, what it says to me that you don't have the confidence um, in your riding skills, and that's where you need the training. Yeah, you, either, you need the training or, or go with a smaller bike that you are comfortable with. And and I don't think yeah. I'm not I'm not one that subscribes to having to stand on the on the ground for the bike. I, mean, I think if you're comfortable with your bike and you can stand on the pegs and and you are, are conf, a confident rider, standing on the like being able to touch the ground with both feet. Yeah, I mean you can get by without it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Birgit, for example, she she um, she could only get the balls of her feet, and sometimes even just the tippy toes of her feet down onto the ground. Um, but she learned how to do it, and the more experienced she became um, as a rider, um, the less it bothered her. The only time it particularly bothered her was, you know, when there was a very steep camber or um, there was a, a, a steep slope sideways, and and you know she try and put a feet down and all of a sudden the ground wasn't there for them to go on to. But Grant was talking about training and I, I totally agree with that. I set off with, with no training at all. And I had one training session not so long back ago um, by a chap called Lance Thomas from the Adventure Brothers. And many people will know um, Lance and his brother, Sean. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Absolutely amazing. The stuff that I learned just from this one training session. But I would say to Peter, and hello, Peter, isn't Europe fantastic to ride? And I'm, I'm so pleased that you're thinking about doing some of the dirt because there are some just amazing trails in um, Europe. But get your training, but do it in two ways. Um, get your training, first of all, without any luggage on your bike, and then get your next lot of training and practice with your luggage on the bike because the bike will handle in a very different way. But do it that way round first. Because that way, while you've got the lighter weight and so on, um, it's much easier to get used to it and then add the weight on. Um, and learn things about um, which are the right tyres to be using um, for off-road because that makes a significant difference. And learn about the tyre pressures for the different um, terrains as well. And off-road skills training courses, they should be teaching you these sorts of things. Um, can you get a lowering kit for a KTM, by the way? I know you can on many of the BMWs, but on a KTM? Um, I've never heard of one, but maybe that's something worth considering. And the other top tip I've got is, if you're going to do dirt riding anywhere, um, get yourself really good maps so that you know what you're likely to encounter, so you're not stretching yourself too far beyond your skill level. And, hey, you'll make mistakes. You'll stuff up. You'll fall off. But every time you do, you'll learn. And the next time you confront that situation, um, you'll be just that much less likely to stuff it up. 
and that's great. And oh, and don't be afraid about turning round because somewhere starts to look too difficult. There's there's nothing wrong with turning around. In fact, I know of a certain author who lives in Bulgaria that wrote a whole book about the importance of being able to face a situation and think, well, this isn't working. I'm going to go another way. That's um, yeah, it's important to be able to do that machismo and dirt road riding, unless you're very very skilled. They just don't work. Um, don't put yourself under pressure when you're riding on the dirt. Just go for it and gently. Yeah, always remember that the important thing is to make it home. And pushing too hard, trying something that just, nah, this doesn't look good, it's not going to get you home. So you always remember when you're riding off-road on a trip, especially solo, I got to get home. So ride accordingly. Keep your pace down. Keep it easy. And if it's looking too hard, yeah, turn around. I absolutely agree big time with that. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention, Sam, Sam mentioned starting your first off-road training course with a bike unloaded and then a second one loaded. Actually, make your first course on a proper small dirt bike. Mm-hmm. And that is so easy. All of a sudden, you you wonder where all the problem is. Then take a course on your big bike from a company that teaches big bike off-road riding. Don't go back yeah. to the same company that just does small bikes because it's a very different thing. But getting your feet wet getting used to it, getting the use of the idea of a feel of a bike moving around in the dirt and the things you can do on a rented dirt bike, which when you fall off it doesn't scratch, it doesn't hurt it, it doesn't matter. You'll get over those initial learning curves um, on something that where it doesn't hurt. Whereas on your 1290, every time you fall off it, you're going to go, oh my God, it's scratched. And that's the way it is. So there's my little added two bits. Uh, oh, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more. And Peter, there's another key thing here, I think. Um, it's how you load your bike. It's it's not only um, the training and the practice and um, having the right bike for you, but it's how you load it. And one of the keys is always pay attention to the center of gravity. If you can get your weight down low and between the wheels, everything about how your bike handles significantly better. You can carry too much stuff if you've got your weight down low. Now, for example, your panniers, whether they're um, soft panniers or they're they're hard panniers, um, put the heaviest things in the front at the bottom of your pannier or or closest to the bike. And it doesn't matter if it's completely logical for those things to be there because you're going to need them fairly regularly. If they're heavy, then that's where they go. And things like tank bag panniers, they're also very useful. We carry things like um, our water in those, our spare oil. Birgit quite often has got um, a bag of tools in there because this balances out a lot of the weight that you're carrying on the bike. And because they're in tank panniers and they're slung down low on either side of your petrol tank, they're very much between the wheels and down low. And it's paying attention to those things that can allow you to learn how to turn your bike on a sixpence. I very rarely ever use a top box because most top boxes are tall. And they're handy. Um, I've ridden with one from Al Jesse, which was um, described as a pizza box. And that actually worked quite well because the weight was spread down low. There was a very firm fixing on it. But um, people put too much weight too high. And that can really badly affect your ride, both on, on roads, but particularly off road. You'll end up being a bit of an upside down pendulum and that just doesn't work. Yeah. Anybody else got any thoughts on, on how to actually load? That's the big one, low and forward and in. 
That's basically mm. all there the, is to it. You mentioned yeah. the tank panniers. Uh, I, I think that is so important for any any sort of long trip where you're taking a lot of gear. You need to balance it. You see so many times the bike's loaded up with everything on the back, and they're just not even meant for it. If you look at your, your weight capacity on your bike and the weight capacity on that subframe, most times you're going to find that it doesn't handle very much weight. And to keep the bike handling properly, as you said, Sam, you know, you have to balance that weight. And it has to be close to the center. And the only way you balance weight from the back is to get something in the front. So you hear stories about people having speed wobbles and speed wobbles on the highway 90% of the time are caused by a big box or a big roll bag on the back with no passenger especially. And the wind catches it and starts shaking the bike back and forth. It's too much weight too far back. That's, think of it, the, uh, that top box with a lot of load in it as a handle for the wind to grab and shake. Not good. Something um, else is worth paying attention to when going off-road is, of course, whether you've got a pillion passenger or not and working Mm -hmm. out with them how you're going to deal riding with um, a pillion passenger. Um, How do they move or not move or do they stand up with you or or what? And having a pillion who feels completely comfortable um, and, of course, trusts you 100% as the rider makes all the difference in the world when you're riding on the loose stuff, doesn't it? Yep. And you can actually take off-road courses with the pillion specifically. And yep. it's a really, really good thing to do if you're riding pillion regularly. Susan and I have worked out our own techniques, and we have variety depending on conditions. But mostly she just sits. I'll stand up if necessary, but she just sits and stays there. And I yep. find that works best for me. Trying to keep balanced in the standing up position, two up is really hard. Yeah. No, I've never seen people doing it, um, looking comfortable with what they're doing. Yeah. Um, Our uh, trainer that we have for our South Africa travelers meeting is an expert rider, and his wife is also a very good rider. And she goes on the back on his, trying to remember what he's riding. It's a big KTM, something or other. And he'll do the obstacle course that he sets up, two up, and then he'll pull a 100-yard wheelie with her on the back. No problem. It's absolutely amazing to watch. So it is something that can be learned and can be done. But he's also really strong and really fit. So it makes a difference. I've just had another thought for Peter um, about um, loading the bike and so on. Peter, if you're planning to do dirt riding, don't use bungee-type straps. Elasticated straps suck when you're um, bouncing around on the dirt because your luggage is going to shift. Use um, solid ratchet straps. Um, Graham, you, you'll agree with that too, won't you? Uh, yeah. Well, I agree with no. that. It depends <laughs> what you're strapping down. Um, if you've got spare tyres or something, yeah, ratchet straps. I mean, if you just put in something on top of the panniers, I think bungees work okay, really. Yeah, they're okay, but if you're going to carry anything heavy, I mean, even the weight of a tent, for example. Um, I've been riding dirt, and I found that the tent's been sliding around, and there have been one or two times where the added slide from um, my bag on the back has nearly thrown me off. Um, whereas when I'm riding with... You can also get wear. I'll come up with a complete disagreement on that. Bungee cords are bungee cords suck, period. That's Bungee cords, those stretchy things with metal hooks on the end forget it throw them away that's a great way to lose an eye and many people have done so um and they don't hold and they fail and they're useless um a permanently uh, like a ratchet strap unless you've got that thing so cranked down it's ridiculous anything that's at all flexible is going to squish as you ride and it's going to loosen up think there's a strap out called rock straps r-o-k strap 
and they are the bee's knees. That's the way to go. Let me, let me, let me interject. Uh, Green chili. (laughs) Green chili, who advertises on our show regularly. Green chili is another good one. Yeah, no, absolutely. They have some really tough straps are the ones I use now. Really tough. So do they have an elastic in them or not? I can't remember. Yeah, they have an elastic. And, and the, the, one of the nice things about it is what they do with it is they put the elastic inside a sleeve. And the sleeve is like yes. a climber's sleeve. So it's as strong as a strap. So when you stretch it out, even if the elastic were to break to give up, it's still going to hold because of the sleeve. It, it won't, won't just fall apart. Whereas a lot of the other straps you'll find do that. But they also use very heavy-duty buckles on it and everything. And you can reef on these things. And they're quite good. Mine are all uh, faded from the sun, but I use them on, on a regular basis. They're the, the pair of the straps there for anything extra I happen to put on the bike. They've held my everything from my winch to picking up a pizza, you know, anything at all. Yeah, those and the rock straps. The big thing with both of them is that it's mostly a, a webbing strap with a short stretch of elastic. So you can really crank on it. It's really tight. They hold really well. And if your load shifts or moves a little bit, the elastic keeps tightening on it. Whereas a bungee cord is just, you know, I, I could say bad words, but only Graham's allowed to on the show. <laughs> <laughs> now, the rock straps or the green chili straps, absolutely 100% the only straps I will use, without a doubt. Well, I was going to add, <laughs> <laughs> <Very weakly. laughs> I was recently given, well, a year or two, guy given some rock straps. And yes, they're brilliant. They are that they are excellent. I would agree with all that. The thing is with bungee cords is there's a lot of bad quality ones out there. Yeah. But back in the day, they were good. And I got given some when I was in Mexico and they were perfectly adequate. They were good, good quality things. I think dissing all bungee cords is a, <laughs> it's a bit bungee cordist, you know? It's, there's some good ones out there. You've just got to take prejudice. <laughs> well, I've seen too I, many I can... fail. I'm quite happy to admit to being bungee cordist. Um, definitely, definitely anti the blooming things. Yes. And you guys are talking about rock straps. I know several people who use them. In fact, Birgit uses them um, and she loves them. Um, I don't. I still find that stuff shifts too much. So I just stick to um, ratchet straps. But maybe I'm just a more wobbly rider than she is. And that makes all of the difference. <laughs> I'm sure um, one, is very smooth. Oh, she is incredibly smooth. It's a joy watching her, um, sitting behind, um, watching her ride. But um, there's one other thing that um, Peter can pay attention to, and that is the clothes that he's intending to wear when he's riding off-road. I've seen um, some people struggle a little bit when they're wearing stuff that's really tight, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't allow airflow, um, and restricts movement. So in other words, the moment you want to stand up, you want to be standing straight up. You don't want to be being held in place by um, heavy duty leather, um, that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I tend to ride wearing um, um, Kevlar cargo trousers, jeans, that sort of thing, um, because I get that much more movement. Um, But that again, is just a personal choice. And isn't this one of the wonderful things about overlanding and motorcycling? So much choice for us to make our own scene the way we want it to be so uh elizabeth our producer has has one more sort of random uh, question here random because no one's heard this Uh, i haven't even read it until now damien murray says um when you're parked up overnight do you strip all your luggage off the bike etc or or example rather um crash bags crash bar bags with your oil and spares or do you just throw a cover over the bike and leave it how much how much faith do you guys have in your bikes not being touched at night it's very much dependent on where I park it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think that's the only really good answer. It depends. Mostly, I will take everything in. Um, I might leave bags, the everything. No, the little bags that are on the front of my bike, um, they've got a couple of straps and maybe a liter of oil or something in them. That's it. I leave that. Somebody wants to steal it. Well, fine. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but go ahead. But uh, everything else, yeah, I just haul it in. But then I've got it down so that it's one pannier bag, two pannier bags, and a, a roll bag. That's it. I'm in. Done. I can carry it all in one go if I have to, if Susan's opening doors for me. So that's it. I keep it simple. Make it easy to unload. Um, if you if it's hard to unload and you've got a million bags, then you're just giving yourself more grief. But a, a single big bag for each pannier that everything goes into and you can just lift out makes a massive difference. Uh, I mean, I leave I leave my tank bags, my tank panniers on the bike. Um, they've got my spare liter or so of oil in, and my water bottles. My water bottles are. Coke bottles that I've reused. So if somebody wants to, to nick those overnight, then they're very welcome. Um, I'm using a, a tank bag itself for the first time um, ever with Libby. And so that just unclips and comes indoors. Um, my panniers, um, they have really good locks onto the bike and they have good locks themselves. Um, so I just take out the things that I need for the night. Um, when I'm traveling and developing um, world places, um, then um, I'll have a, a very lightweight um, bike cover and I'll put that over the top of it. Um, and I find out of sight is out of mind so much. Um, but when I'm developing world countries, I'm never leaving my bike parked on the street. It's always off the street um, in a, a, a protected car park at the hotel or garage or whatever else. Um, and I still leave stuff on the bike then. Yeah, I leave as little as possible on the bike as I can. Um, I know of a guy who was riding up from Colombia, came here to Vancouver, and Vancouver is a safe place. I mean, it's, it's definitely relatively safe. So he thought, I'm in Canada now. I, it's, it's safe here. So he parked his bike in an underground parking lot with his camera in the tank bag. Well, oh, you know what happened. So you never know. If it's anything valuable, somebody could steal it. I parked my GS in a Birmingham parking lot for a Tesco or something. Um, came back and somebody had rifled through the tank fairing, or the, the tank pockets. You just don't know. So if it's valuable, if it's important, if it's more valuable than a Coke bottle with water in it, then maybe you should take it inside. Or yeah, put a cover on it at the very least. I mean, a cover is an automatic thing in most parts of the world. Even if I'm parking it in someplace safe in the developing country, like Sam was saying, I'll still put a cover on it. Just because even the, the guard may want to come over and look at it and play with it. I've had my bike fallen over, and the only possible way in the world it could have fallen over is if somebody got on it and discovered that it was heavier than he was expecting and it fell over and he couldn't pick it up because there was no way it was falling over by itself. Mm. That's a really good tip. Sam, do you do that? And, and Graham, do you guys cover your bike when it's in a secure place? It depends on where. Um, I mean, our bikes are sitting outside the hotel here, and um, they haven't got covers on because we're in an area where we think it's absolutely fine, but there's nothing on the bikes that anybody could easily get at if they want to. And I'm touching wood when I'm saying this, of course. They'd need crowbars to get into the panniers and so on. Um, it may be that somebody would want to do that, but this is such a peaceful, gentle area. I'm not sweating it. But if we were parking somewhere dodgy, um, then for sure the bikes would have covers. Yeah. Yeah, and I find that even 
if you leave the bike someplace and it's not covered, people flip all the darn switches. There's, there's all kinds of things. Put a cover on it. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. People don't even notice it. Um, I've watched from a hotel room a bike that's covered and across the street a bike that's not covered. And the difference in people's attitude to the two is amazing. Yeah, it's huge. Put a cover on it. And a cover's a multi-purpose tool anyway. If you break down by the side of the road and it's a bit drizzly, then just strap the cover on one side of the bike and treat it as a tarpaulin and work away underneath it. Yep. Um, and you can also put spare on parts on it. <laughs> yep. it's, it's a good ground cover. Well, I mean, that's a good point. Um, I was talking to a, a guy a few months back and um, 21 punctures in one day. Oh. 21 punctures. Oh. Hey, he said it's one of the most soul-destroying days of his life. And I said, well, you know, what was going on? And he said, I still haven't worked it out. He, was, he wasn't putting anything on the ground under his tires when he was changing his tires. Oh, he's getting and I inside. bet he was pick yeah, I bet that's mm. what was happening. Yeah. Or he's got a pinch in his tire somewhere, you know, that can be poking through and I've seen that where it uh, wears through the tube very quickly. You get these little yep. yeah. little cuts. I've had that experience fifteen kilometers and oh, take it out and look inside and right, there's a rough spot in the tube or in the yeah. in the inside of the tire and I didn't catch it. Always inspect. Yeah. Well, before we go on to plugs, does anyone have any tips? Well, I'll give a, I'll give a top tip from Birgit. Seeing as um, um, she can hear this, but um, only one-sided. Birgit's top tip is um, in the bottom of your panniers, pack stuff in small plastic um, boxes. So they fill the bottom of your panniers. Um, so the heavier things go in those plastic tubs and 3D jigsaw puzzle-like in the bottom of your panniers. And that way, if you ever get a leak, then um, it's not going to damage anything that's in the bottom there. And you've always got that bottom regularly, firmly packed, nice and solid with nothing shifting around. Mm. There we are. That's a, bur that's a burger top tip, seeing as none of the rest of us have got any. I like nice that. One. Very yeah. nice. Okay, well, moving on to plugs. Grant, I'm going to put you up first. What do you have for a plug? Travelers meetings. What else? <laughs> We've got lots of events coming up. Seems like you do a lot uh, of this, this traveler meeting thing. Oh, it's it's getting a little crazy. And we've probably got another couple. We're looking at Columbia for next year. So that, that may or may not happen. You're but at let's like 27 see. or something like that, aren't you? 26 uh, or 27? 25 that I, uh, last time I counted it was 25 this 25. year. Fortunately, we do not go to all of them. It would kill us, especially when we have two on two different continents in the same weekend. Well, you have two people. Um, I, one could go to one, one could go to the other. We've talked about that and decided, <laughs> no, no, no. Just just the costs of doing it is just yeah. absurd. Um, no, there's lots of lots of events that we would like to go to. Um, there was one in Mongolia. We would love to have gone to that one, but no, can't do it. Uh, we've got Italy coming up. Yeah, next weekend, we've got North Carolina. Now, this is the 15th anniversary of the North Carolina Horizons Unlimited Travelers Meeting, and it's the only event that we've been in the same place that long. That's Iron Horse Motorcycle Lodge in Sokoa, North Carolina. That's going to be a fun event, so come and join us for that one. And Can I just jump in there, Grant? Sure. Um, I've been to that and had an absolute ball. It's a fantastic venue and a really nice atmosphere, and the surrounding riding just full on. Um, so anybody who's thinking about going but not quite sure, um, just do it. You, you'll yeah. not regret it. It's a buzz. 
Yeah, they've got all kinds of stuff going on there. And every year when I, I don't go every year, unfortunately, but every time I go, they've added in something new. They're constantly expanding and improving the place. Uh, you can actually buy a house there mm. and be up, up above and on the mountain. You can have your own house and live there and come and use it as a vacation home or wherever land. you want. On their land. Yeah, it's quite the place. And the riding, as Sam says, is spectacular. This is uh, Tale of the Dragon and other famous roads are in the area. Every time I go there, it's just fabulous. So, yeah, check that one out. It's going to be fun. And we'll be there. So that'll be good. Um, the same weekend, and here's another where we have the issue, the same weekend we have an event in France. So that one's check, – check that one out, horizonsunlimited.com slash events. It's a French event, and it's got very French atmosphere to it. And it's in a campground. It's They're actually – pretty full up at the moment, but you might be able to squeeze one or two people in. And um, California the weekend after that, so September 27 to 30 for California, that's going to be a fun one. Um, we're hoping that there won't be any issues with fires. There shouldn't be. It's supposed, the area is supposed to be okay at the moment, and um, fire season is coming to an end, so that's going to be good. Um, Indonesia, if you're going to be in anywhere near Indonesia, October 11 to 14, I'll be there. So hope to see you people at that. Check us out, horizonsunlimited.com slash events. Very nice. And Graham, what do you have for plugs today? Uh, I've got an unplug, really. An unplug? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose we go to the States uh, in a few days, and I'm not going to be go, able to go. Uh, loads and loads of reasons, which you can't go into now. Um, and I was really dreading having to tell Grant, having he made special uh, prime time Friday night presentation for me at the Yosemite meet in Mariposa. And I had to email Grant and tell him I'm not going to be able to make it. And Grant, you sent the loveliest email back. It was so touching and so understanding. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no so, um, yeah, I'm, I can't go to the States. Uh and I can't go into reasons why, but that's not going to happen. So I'm sorry to all the people I let down and disappoint on that. However, I will be going to the Cop Doc show in England, in the UK, in Suffolk, as I always do. I'll be there on the 7th of October. Very nice. I, I've never heard of an unplug now. That's, that's a new part of my vocabulary. <laughs> I'm glad I have that now. <laughs> What's the Cop Doc show? Oh, it's uh, a big, big show. And it's... Uh, it started off in this little village hall of these old boys selling bits of obscure British bike parts. And over, it's probably 25 years it's been running now. And it's expanded into this huge showground. It has wall of death. It has classic motorcycle displays. It has custom motorcycle displays. It has a huge auto jumble. It has massive amount of trade stands. It's not a greedy show. It's cheap for people to attend. It's inexpensive for traders to go to. And the money goes to charity. It's a beautiful ethical wonderful show that you can't possibly see in a whole day and uh, like i said i've been going there certainly the majority of them over 25 years and i'll be back there again this year now are you going to be displaying there will, will you be there signing books and whatnot uh yeah yeah i got the books and the audio books uh and the pannier box sets uh what's left of them and uh the KLR will be there as well, hopefully. I mean, Ooh. it's only about 20 miles from me mum, so you should make it. <laughs> how, how much oil does it take to get that distance? Well, I've got about two litres left, so I might just make it. I'll make it there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the KLR where you swap the gas tank around where it now holds oil? 
Yeah, actually, um, that whole journey is uh, about to be, uh, it's uh, going to be a seven-page feature in the current Adventure Bike Rider magazine. So oh, it's called nice. ABR, yeah, ABR magazine. So there's a huge explanation as to why the hell would you ride a bike that sick that far and uh, and some good photos as well. So uh, if you're more interested in why the hell you do that, there's a full explanation in the current Adventure Bike Rider magazine. What, what month is that for September, October? Yeah, I think it's it, it comes out right now as the show is aired. So I think they class it as do they class it as October, October. November, or September, October, something yeah. like that. They always class it ahead of when it comes out. But right. Yeah, the current the current one. Very nice. What do you have for us, Sam? Well, um, there's quite a lot going on. Um, my next big show is going to be Motorcycle Live. Um, that's at the Birmingham National Exhibition Centre. It's a nine-day show, and I, I love this. I've been there for, I don't know, 11, 12 years, something like that. And I'll be um, book signing as a, a guest author on the Adventure Bike Shop stand. That's from the 17th to the 25th of November. And I'm going to have um, two books besides mine, and they're really interesting, but I'm not going to say what they are. People have to come and find out, and they are signed copies too. So, um, yeah, that's going to be a, a really nice aspect. Um, if people would like to have a look at my website, the um, UK and US events for next year are coming up very nicely. And um, next year, um, during April and May, I'm going to be working my way across from Virginia to Arizona and doing presentations along the way. I'm already booked for BMW in Oklahoma and Albuquerque and um, at Expo West in Flagstaff. And I'm working with three other dealerships at the moment um, for earlier on in the journey. But those dates are already up on my website, which is sammanicum.com. Um, so the new dates will be going up there. And it'd be absolutely fantastic to see Adventure Rider Radio listeners there. Um, so far, I've been able to link up with quite a lot of listeners at the various US events, and it's brilliant fun to do that. So yeah, um, it's all coming together. Well, that all sounds good. Everyone has a lot going on by the sounds of it. We'll be back in our house uh, another week or so on the coast here to soak up some of the wet and uh, close down sort of the riding season, I think, pretty much. Anyway, we'll see how the winter goes. But that was a great show. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Good job. Cheers. Bye. Bye. things up for this month's ARR Raw and thanks to my co-hosts starting with Sam Manicom who lives in the UK and has four books and audiobooks for you to follow along in his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world drop by his website at sam-manicom.com Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks of course are not here but they are also authors of great travel books www.aussiesoverland.com.au and Graham Field lives in Bulgaria he's the author of some really great adventure books and he has some audiobooks and t-shirts and all kinds of things at his website www 
gramfield.co.uk. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum to connect travelers from around the world. They also put on the hub meets around the world that Grant is always talking about on this show. Drop by the website, www.horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next month. Oh, wait, before we go, we want to uh, get you to consider dropping by our website and helping support the show um, by clicking on the donate button. Uh, Just drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on this show, adventureriderradio.com. Thank you.